It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Our guest today is CEO Helen Thomas. Helen is the chairman, chief executive officer, and co-founder of TouchJet USA. An award-winning entrepreneur and marketer, Helen has a track record of building technology and digital media companies from the startup to exit. She was the founding CEO of LeapFrog China, and at LiveScribe, she grew worldwide sales from zero to 50 million within three years. She also built Blue Focus Communication Group from zero to 200 million in the North American market within two years. Helen Fu Thomas, welcome into the corner office. Hi, Brent. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Tell us a little bit about your earlier years. What was it like growing up as a kid? Lots of writing, a lot of reading. Um, just try to learn as much as possible. And in those days, there was very little technology. Where did you grow up, Helen? I was born and raised in Beijing, China, the capital city of China. Awesome. Awesome. Great. And uh, you did your early education there as well, which we'll talk about in a minute? All the way up to college. Wow. Excellent. Terrific. So we're looking forward to hearing that trajectory, which, uh, you know, is an exciting one because we do have a very diverse audience, people that have come from lots of different backgrounds and like yourself also are immigrants that have grown up and uh, are aspiring to as well as having been successful here. Uh, what about your mom and dad? What did they do? What, was, what were their jobs and uh, their influence on you growing up? My father is an engineer, uh, electronic engineer. And my mother was an accountant in a construction company. And uh, uh, both from the Beijing area, or did they commute in from outside provinces to start their career and their life in Beijing? Uh, they both had their careers in Beijing. They actually met in Beijing, although the interesting background is that both of their families are from Hainan Island. So Hainan Island is like Hawaii ah. of the United States. So. All right. Right. Excellent. And so did they uh, grow up there and then go to school in Beijing? Is that what brought them there or did they move to Beijing with their careers? My mother grew up in Beijing. My father actually got his college degree in southern China 
and then moved up to Beijing and then met in, in Beijing. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you grew up during the time, uh, I believe, of the one-child policy. It might have changed during that point in time. Were you the only child or, or did you have siblings as well? I was, um, uh, I was born before the one-child policy was in place. Okay. They, they, could, they, <laughs> could right. have, they could have more than one, but they chose to have one. Got it. Right. So that's quite common in in, uh, in China. I don't know if you know this or not, but I lived in Asia for about a decade and worked out of Singapore and got lots of exposure to the culture and just a fascinating part of the world. Um, what were you like as a student? Uh, you know, as we would say in the U.S., uh, were you an A student, someone who was always studying, getting the top grades in the class? Were you kind of more middle of the road or, or was school not your thing growing up? Well, definitely the A student because we didn't know better not to be an A yeah. student. There was not the option not to be the A student. <laughs> right, right. Very competitive, I can imagine. Out of uh, you know billion people, um, I think the the percentage of students actually could go to colleges back then is even much lower than today. Wow, very competitive. And um, what about leadership roles or any entrepreneurial things growing up? Uh, you know, in this country, of course, there's a much more common involvement as it relates to, you know, young men that might have paper roots, girls that might sell lemonade by the side of the road. W were there those types of uh, activities, anything outside of school that you were involved with uh, in the early days from a business or entrepreneurial standpoint? Absolutely. I, I think it's interesting if I look back, um, since very early on, I, I worked as a copywriter for my grandfather, um, whose oh. uh, handwriting uh, was not recognizable. <laughs> so, so I almost worked every single day after school just to um, copyright what he put in the journal. And uh, he was part of the historical research. So his full-time job is to provide historical facts of World War II and all that. Um, I always played um, a leadership role in, you know, a K-12 in, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, in high school, my, um, almost my, my full-time role is, because I was the president of the student association, from early on, so I kind of wrote. would that be kind of like the equivalent of student government, um, uh, or was it more of a social type of responsibility when you say student it's association? Both. It's uh, yeah, academically, um, you know, has to be profoundly ahead of everybody else socially, as well as to work with the the principal principals of the schools and the teachers, the faculties. And it being that uh, liaison between the student body and uh, and the school itself. So, got it. And how many years were you involved in that? All the way uh, up to college, um, I, I played that role. You know, early on, um, from middle school to high school, and uh, as well as in college. And were there different types of leadership positions? In other words, you know, in the U.S., a, a student that would pursue that would be, you know, potentially president or maybe, you know, uh, of their class or head of certain activities. Did you play a variety of different roles or was it always in the top slot? <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I was in the top slot. <laughs> I, I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> well, the 
school, actually, it's not just a class. How did I get there? I had no clue. I, I can't I can't recall. I could only um I had the memories in terms of because because a lot of it is also out of school. It's between yeah. our school with right. other schools. Right. And right. also traveling, representing the city of Beijing as head of my school and it went to uh, different provinces and different oh, parts of China. Fantastic. So it was quite um, quite a journey. I really yeah. had a lot of opportunities back then to learn, um, you know, how to how to lead, how to balance between academics and uh, you know community activities, as well as you know critical thinking and be creative. Well, it sounded like you traveled quite a bit around the country. Um, that was that on a quite regular basis. Was it kind of two or three times a year? And, and what, what what parts of China did you travel to when you uh, made those trips? Um, there were two parts. One personally, um, my my grandfather always took summer trips because it's extremely hot in, in Beijing. So I got opportunities um, to go to coastal cities with him almost like his personal assistant. <laughs> and, <laughs> nice, and, and nice. also um, because I'm involved in lots of extracurricular, you know, activities. So I would go to, um, you know, the East Coast of China and some other parts outside Beijing. Right, right. And would you get paid for that work that you did for your no. granddad, whether it was the writing? No. <laughs> that was a pretty quick answer. Ne- never on the table, never discussed. I presume. Yep. <laughs> now, uh, you know, we hear a lot about multi-generational uh, families in Asia. I certainly saw that. Uh, was your grandfather in your home growing up? Um, and were you two, three generations there? Or was it, uh, uh, you know, at that point in time, uh, him living in a separate uh, family situation. I actually grew up with my grandparents. I was the oldest um, grand- grandchild because my mother was the oldest daughter right. out of five children. Um, partially because my grandparents lived in lived in a courtyard, um, and um, it's it's an environment that. Um, you know, it's easier for a child like me to well, play in and have your roam around, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. I was very fortunate um, to have that opportunity uh, to be, you know, spending time with him and learning. That's fantastic. Yeah. I just think that's so, um, so special. You know, we miss that in the Western culture. Uh, I knew so many of my employees who, even in Singapore, but also other parts of uh, Asia, who came up in those multi-generational families. And there's just so much wisdom and so many things that can be learned from, you know, having those two or three generations apart. And I suppose, again, because both your parents work full time, uh, I assume your, your grandmother and or your grandfather, you know, had a little more time for you. Uh, did you physically live in their home then and, and were there for many years? Wow. And that was all through your school years? They they have a private space. They have their private kitchen bathroom, which is <laughs> luxury. Well, my parents um, had to have shared apartments and uh, um, and eventually when went to middle school, I moved back to my parents' home. But uh, it's a very unique a childhood, I think, to build the foundation 
of independence, um, you know, I, I left China right after college. Yeah. And I found my way um, all around North America. So I have to say those early, you know, years might have built something in me that enabled me <laughs> to do yeah, be more what, what I've been doing. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. What were some of those key lessons? Uh, it sounds like your grandfather and you had a very special relationship, I can imagine, being the oldest grandchild and a granddaughter, which, of course, is very special. Uh, you know, if you think back to those years, those early years when you were doing, you know, your calligraphy for him and, and traveling, what, what would you say two or three of the key lessons you learned from him about business and about life? My grandfather was um, was a World War II hero, and he yeah. fought along the lines uh, with the ally, uh, the British and the uh, American. Yes, fantastic. So the historical facts about the World War II, as I was a copywriter, so I got to read them before anybody else got to read them. Oh, yeah. The, the fact that... Um, you know how how the Chinese could have survived and won the war at the end after lots of sacrifices, right? Um, as well as just just saw respect that um, he has earned, given what he did, because his um, social circle are the others. Um, you know, at his age and a shared, you know, life death experience. Yeah, and we had overseas visitors uh, once China opened the doors. So people from Canada, people from Hong okay. Kong, eventually yeah. even people from Taiwan started to come in and it reunited with him and talk about what happened years ago. So it really gives you, I mean, give give me as a child the spectrum of life. Um, Fantastic. I think most children grow up just thinking about what's in front of them. My learning gave me a much broader perspective. Life is now just now and today and how I grow up. Look at his life, um, the war and, you know, uh, China and, um, you know, those writing and research and raising a granddaughter like me. Um, and every day I got home, he would, you know, really cheered up and say, oh, the big student <laughs> is home. He, he, in Chinese, it's almost so like the college student, <laughs> because when you say, uh, it's like, I was just elementary school kid, but he always gave me that welcome and that cheer and make me feel like, I will, I will go to college, right? Right, right. Interesting. So really kind of a projection, right? He was giving you projection motivation, it sounds like. That's absolutely correct. That's right. Future. That's yeah. right. And it sounds like you got a lot of international exposure, too, with the people that would come and visit. Did you get a chance to meet some of those folks from, from some of this wartime Always. period? Yeah. Uh, as I said, I was... Uh, I was the personal assistant. <laughs> I was there. Yeah, right, right. You were there. You were bringing, bringing the tea and helping him with, uh, you know, uh, all the introductions. And and these were people that he fought alongside for the most part, or, or, or were they contacts from? That's right. And lots of them, um, 
were in his uh, army and he was more like a com- commander. Um, so so you, wow. you, you saw these wow. people, total strangers. They, they broke into tears, they saluted mm. him as if he's someone very special. And, mm. you know, I was being seen, not being heard, right? I was just there watching. Right, <laughs> right, right. Word. Of course, of course. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a tremendous um, uh, experience for me in, in, in the first, you know, uh, before, before I became a teenager, that's, that's what life is all about, is my grandparents, my school, and, uh, and all these unexpected events, um, you know, now and then. So it, it's very special. Fantastic. Wow. What an experience. And do you think you got a little flavor for things international at the time? Do you think that might have seeded your eventual immigration to the U.S. and your success here? Um, I definitely. I, I didn't know back then, uh, but I yeah. chose international finance as my major when I went to college. And, uh, and right after, um, uh, even before I graduated from college, I was spending tremendous amount of time on uh, test preparation for those, you know, uh, GRE, GMAT, uh, TOEFL, everything that, that would take for me to get a scholarship and to go get more education uh, in grad school right. outside China. That was uh, one of my main focuses uh, because I really want to learn more. Um, yeah, yeah. You have a real hunger for education, it sounds like, a hunger for learning. That's true. That's true. Now, uh, getting to college in China is, of course, I'm sure very different than in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. um, I da- my daughter's a freshman at Dartmouth, and oh boy, I'll tell you what we went through and all the applications and all that. What, what was it like for you? Was it kind of a predetermined college that you would go to? Do you go through an application process? And how did you select or where did you, um, you know, finally, uh, or what were the circumstances around where you went for your undergraduate degree? Well, first of all, congratulations on your daughter. Um, Dartmouth is one of the first schools I visited with my son. Ah, my son fantastic. is a sophomore. Um, so I definitely went on my favorite uh, colleges on the East Coast. Where is he? Where is he studying now? He's at the boarding school. He's at the Deerfield Academy. Oh, Deerfield! My daughter went to Taft uh, for her high school years, and Deerfield was one of her first choices. So, uh, there sounds like they're on a similar path. <laughs> Small world, isn't it? And Deerfield's quite close, in fact, to Dartmouth. Not more than about uh, oh, about an hour away, I think, something like that. And about an hour and a half. Yeah, an and, hour and a half. And, Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, they they even share like a similar logos or their Athletic gear, so similar. Um, yeah, they're both and, green. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, I love, I love that school. I love that town. So, talking about yeah. So, uh, your your college. Uh, how does it how does it work in China? Did you have a selection? Was there? It's very uh, competitive. Yeah, first of all, is uh, national standard exams. Um, you you felt like you studied your whole life just for that <laughs> college entry. Yeah. Um, exam and uh, they are very selective. There are top schools like Peking University or Tsinghua University. Uh, I went to Renmin University. This is one of the top three in Beijing. And how does it work? Do you, did you apply to several schools or do you get selected based on your test scores? How does it work in China? It's interesting because of 
all the things I did, uh, and a very unusual uh, exposure as the president of the you know student body and you know all that. Um, I actually I was pre-selected right. um, by one of the uh, three schools, and um, so I didn't have to go through even application or the exams. I I. I, I, you had to choose. Yeah. I, I got, uh, first of all, they said, okay, we'll admit you. It's, it's like a pre-commit, right? <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but they, but they, they told me, well, here are the majors. Um, and I said, I really want international finance. That's like the top major, um, in that school. And that's like, um, at the very beginning of having that kind of major, um, in China. So it's very competitive, very, very. I mean, if people around the country apply to that major at that school. Um, and I still don't understand how I made up a mind and basically <laughs> told them, how dare I, how dare I said that, say that, but I did. I said, you know, I love to come to your school, but I really want this major. So if you don't think you would pre-admit me, I would just go take the exams <laughs> good for you and did they I, I was in i was in i was in fantastic and what was what was it that led you to choose that major what you know what was it about international finance that um attracted you i think it's a rare factor it's just a how competitive how rare that is that's like one of the first in the country yeah. number two is um it's a global, um, uh, international appeal. And the number three is they actually have um, American teachers. Oh, really? Oh, um, terrific. Like taught in that school for that major. And so, so classes that, that were in English as well. Yes. Yeah, and, and native English, not, not yeah. you know, Chinese English. Or <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Fantastic. And um, again, I know the university system is probably a little different. Is it a three-year degree undergrad, two-year, four-year? Four. Four-year. Four so similar to the U.S. in that respect. And did you know going in that you eventually wanted to go to grad school? I'm not sure. Um, I knew it at the beginning. It was just a, such a thrill I could get in college and one of the top majors in one of the top schools. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think eventually... I felt like it's not enough. Even even I had the best um, uh, professors um, in in finance, international finance. Even the job pers- uh, uh, perspectives are really really good, and my um, my peers all went to the biggest banks and the international corporations and had great jobs. Um, but somehow. I, I think uh, for whatever reason, I felt like I should pursue more education. I want to really see the world outside China to practice what I learned. So so I decided to apply for MBA um, overseas. So that decision was made during your undergrad years? Yes, yes. And uh, any, you know, I'm sure the, the college curriculum was 
intensive there, but did you, again, work? Was there any outside extracurricular activity, anything in the arts that you pursued? We didn't talk about that, you know, music or otherwise. What what were some of the things that you did with what little spare time you had, Helen? That's, that's a very interesting question. Um, it'd be a little bit of a longer answer because you asked a different aspects. Um, number one, I started working as a, a, a liaison or representative of overseas business because my English is very good. I work as interpreters. I worked um, as basically uh, 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 in the so-called representative offices of overseas companies, either they're from Hong Kong or Taiwan from the U.S. So I got to um, learn and work with business people from outside China. Um, number two, in terms of other interests, um, th- that is a sad part of my childhood, which is uh, back then, um, like interest in art and music, I-, I think it was perceived more as a distraction versus, um, uh, you know, a talent, right? My, my daughter is uh, a ballet dancer. My son is a baseball player. So in this country, when I raised my kids, I spent a lot of time and put in lots of effort to support what they can do outside the classrooms. But back, back, for, back in my childhood days, I was basically told that you shouldn't be distracted. Everything, every minute, you know, all your effort has to go into those books and have to go into your GPA, basically, and to stay sure, as sure. a student. Um, so I, I didn't. Well, let's face it; you were also working for your grandfather. Right. <laughs> that took a lot of your time. <laughs> so I was told to stop drawing and to do the right. No, um, I, I I think I always had some kind of interest. I'm. I'm a very creative person. I, I regret that I didn't pursue more of the artistic artistic skills. When I was at Deerfield for my fall visit, I was actually in my son's art uh, class, oh, and the parents great. were handed a pencil and paper, and, <laughs> and I did my part of the participation. And then my son looked at it and said, like, Oh, now I know where I got my talent. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful thing to say. Yes, oh, right. It was, a, it was a memory for you, right? Huh? Trust me, I was not good at all, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's terrific. So um, great. So you, you finished your degree, um, made the decision to go to grad school. Was there any work that you did before or did you begin applications and take your GMAT? Uh, while in China, and then went directly to uh, grad school after com- completing your graduation. I didn't, I didn't waste a day. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. I, I went right. straight um, out of uh, China, and uh, well, I, I worked part time um, anyway. But but what type of work was that? As I said, you know, helping overseas companies and working their representative offices and uh, yeah. did lots of. And that was paid? That was paid work? Absolutely. I, I made more money than my parents from the start. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and it helped me, um, you know, save up a little bit yeah. and, uh, and about myself, the tickets. 
I got a scholarship at St. Mary's University for MBA program oh, in um, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Yeah. The first is you could go from China. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's hard to get further Can away from that. <laughs> Was that what, what were some of your other uh, uh, choices for grad school? You know, I I I couldn't pursue any others less than a full scholarship. Yeah. Uh, because I still had to apply for a visa. And in order to get a visa, either to the United States or Canada, you had to be financially sustained. But but the Chinese parents back then, not like today, they could pay for everything today. But back then, there's no financial resource. Oh, yeah. No, but absolutely. only scholarship that will enable a student like me to get a visa. Um, so, so that's that's the one, and that's where I went. Yeah, fantastic. And have you lived in North America since then, or did you return to China after you finished your, your MBA? Yeah, so I was in Canada for the first year. I transferred myself to um, to the Bay Area and got my MBA from um, uh, Hospice uh, School at UC Berkeley. Oh, got it. Okay, got it. So you just you didn't complete your MBA at St. Mary's. I pretty much stayed in the North America since uh, 1991. It's 26 years, uh, 20, 27 years. That's a long time. So are you, are you a citizen, you're a citizen now? I, I, yes. I understand. I, I became a citizen 1999. Berkeley's a great school. Uh, our oldest son got his mechanical engineering degree there, and he's been working at uh, Ford in Detroit for the last several years. Wow. And, uh, he grew up down here in Southern California, where I am today. And, uh, you know, we enjoyed having him closer to home. Uh, but Haas is a, a terrific school. So did you kind of just do one year at both locations? Is that kind of how it worked for you? Or did Haas require you to, um, you know, kind of redo courses? Yeah, I actually <laughs> did the whole three-year uh, program. You, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because yeah, that was yeah, working terrific. at the same time. Course. And what kind of work were you doing then during your uh, your years at Berkeley? I was um, international business manager at a company called S and W Fine Foods. Um, okay, it's sure know them well. Your brand um, and canned canned foods for the most yes, part. Yes, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, um, you know, lived in San Ramon, which is a nice suburb, and commuted yeah. to school while working full time. And uh, it was uh, it was very busy years um, at that time. Now, were those finance positions, marketing? What what did you uh, do at SNW during those uh, years while you were at, at Haas? I was international business manager, so I applied analytical skills as working for the executive VP of worldwide sales, and it did lots of sales planning. Also did marketing projects, uh, new products, and the new market entry uh, strategy for new business development. Um, it was a very versatile position as to have early P&L uh, responsibilities for certain territories working with overseas distributors, uh, but but also have um, you know sales and marketing training, understanding um, you know how to develop a product, what is the life cycle of a product, and uh, and a new new business or new product. 
planning. So, so very thorough training in uh, yeah, in no, the CPG it's a great, company. Great company. Yeah. And yeah, were you focused on on China or the Asia region, or were you looking at multiple international markets for them? Um, I worked directly for the head of sales, so I had a, a global view. I was even involved in projects in the U.S. as well. And eventually, I earned my um, responsibilities um, to to uh, to oversee part of Asia, um, including China. Yeah, fantastic. And did you have people responsibilities during those harsh years, or were you more of an individual contributor in those roles? I had I had subordinates uh, who were much older than I was. Yeah, can imagine. <laughs> so, so I when I walked in and I got an office uh, and you had all these people in cubicles outside um it's it's interesting it's it's very interesting what were what were some of those early leadership lessons then uh, particularly with working or having people that were more senior in years to you working for you i think there are three things uh managing up and down is critical so we're we're not just managing our subordinates; we're managing our bosses as well. So, so, so having that um, relationship and understand the objectives and uh, and the work towards those objectives are very important. Um, and number two is um, number is everything in business. As having analytical skills, had my international finance degree, and then more of a marketing focus in MBA at UC Berkeley. Basically, and then analytically, I was the first one who carried laptop. So you know, being able to articulate and and providing analysis around the business. Uh, number three is all communication, meaning that either writing memo, writing a market research paper, or I mean, communication in business today, it, it turned to be a little bit too casual for me. I think because of social media, you know, tweet, Twitter and all of that. I still write, um, you know, my weekly um, summaries to my shareholders. In, even today, and they love it. You know, I just had a call with one of my board observers who's in London, and 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 he said, "Well, everything you said, it took me only half an hour, and we went through their critical points, and and he said everything you said makes a lot of sense because you had communicated with us on a weekly basis. Um, so, so I think those are the things are, are critical. No substitute for, yeah, no substitute for good communications. So, so did you join SW full time then when yes. you completed oh, yeah. your MBA yes. at Hawk? Yeah. And how many years were you with them, including the time that you uh, worked there part time during school? Over five years. And, uh, five years. Um, and then I went to LeapFrog. Uh, got interested yeah. in uh, technology and interactive technology. Media. Yeah. And they have been doing startups since then. So uh, it's very different. It's very different um, uh, in terms of working in Silicon Valley versus a traditional consumer packaged goods company. 
Yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about that because that's a pretty big pivot. You know, S and W, very well established company, been around a long time. I'm sure a growing export business, um, and then to go to tech, what what was it? I mean, one of the things, of course, was location. Right, you're right in the center of Silicon Valley and all that's going on there. But there had to be other things that attracted you to go into technology. What were they? I think there were um, the the benefit. The benefits I, I have in terms of pursuing a, a, a career shift like that um, really is my education, my experience, and my, cap- my capability or track record in terms of making something, build something from nothing, right? Um, I, I, I think when a company like LeapFrog, they want to grow rapidly in Asia after their initial success in the U.S., they're looking for people who are going to bring a holistic approach for the business. Oh, so were you, were you recruited over? Is that kind of how you made that first move from, from <laughs> S&W to interesting Because I had my first child, um, my son in Deerfield, as, as we just talked about. So, so I, I had my first child, um, he was born in 2002. I got my job at uh, LeapFrog at the end of the year of 2002. So, so I, I, I fell in love with LeapFrog products. Okay. Uh, you know, very interactive, very educational. And, uh, and I, I basically, you know, build a portfolio of what I did before. And uh, uh, the recruiter at uh and Frog was smart enough <laughs> to, to, to bring me in. And I, I, I tell you, I, I probably had interviews with more than 10 people. And eventually I met their uh, uh, president of worldwide consumer sales. Tim Bender was very, very open-minded. And, 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 uh, and he, he gave me the job to, to come in. Um, I started with mostly marketing for Asia Pacific, and then I became the senior director. And eventually, I wrote a proposal, went to the board, and I got the investment uh, to go to China and build Leaf for China as a founding CEO. So that was it was a quite a run. Yeah. How many years were you with LeapFrog, Helen? Um, just about five years. And and what was their size and sales at the time you joined? And what was it when you left? Um. I think when I joined, it was almost not nothing, right? Yeah, um, just getting started, getting right? Getting started, and I, our first focus is Japan. I work with um, like four predominant companies in in Japan. As a twist, as in Japan, but not say in Japan. Gaken is a published in Japan. Sega is one of the biggest uh, gaming company in Japan. Right. So. Uh, if Japan was really the beachhead, and then we got into Korea, we launched the product as an English learning platform, had a huge success, and then we turned our focus on China. Obviously, China is a much bigger market. So, so to answer your question, we probably went from zero to, you know, uh, seventy-five million um, for the whole region. Um, in a very short period of time, um, it, it's a great platform uh, to to have. You know, iPad, uh, LeapPad is really iPad before iPad. Right, that's uh, came right. Out, yeah, so no. it was uh, very rewarding. 
And how, how, what was the size of the company at the time of your departure with the business you? 750 million. So you had about 10, 10% or so of that and, and pretty much built that from scratch. Yeah, fantastic. And then did you move back to the U.S.? What Because you've done pretty much successive startups since then, as yeah. I, I have read the resume. So tell me a little bit about two things. Number one, how did you return back to the States? And, and you know, what's inspired you to do, you know, really things from scratch, where, as you know, you know, there's so much risk involved and so many new companies do not succeed. I got recruited by one of the co-founders on Leapfrog when Jim McGrath, um started Livescribe, which is another startup company. Right. Right. Uh, he knew that we would work together again. Yeah. And uh, so I went to Livescribe, and I was the only female uh, founding senior staff member. Yeah, you were in the C-suite then. Did you did yeah. you report into the CEO in that role? What what was your responsibility at Livescribe? I was work by sales, um, and uh, it's very unusual uh, to have a minority woman. Oh yes, <laughs> in that room, <laughs> and constantly meeting with investors and uh, looking after not just Asia, China, but really the worldwide sales, including Best yeah. Buy and. The, the U.S. US K-12 market, market yeah. and all that. So um, so that was a quite a run. We built it from uh, zero to 50 million within three years. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and yeah, lots of hard work, lots of hard work. But uh, it, was, it was. Did you think your leadership style changed? You know, uh, tell us a little bit about at that point at Livescribe, um, you know, were there other things that you learned and other things that you thought of as it related to what was important, you know, in terms of managing business and managing people? I think there are three things. One is I'm not just managing my salespeople and my distributors and my staff. I'm building alignment um, across R&D, marketing, finance, logistics, mm. operations. So, so being in that room as a senior staff member, having the weekly meetings and uh, talking about the weekly status, talking about strategy. So that's number one. It's, it's, it's a broader sort of uh, a strategic role versus just the focusing, focusing on delivering um, results. Number two is uh, board and investor relationship. Um, you know, how to communicate effectively and, uh, and uh, meet expectations or, or build expectations. And, uh, and I think number three is, you know, when things become challenging, especially we're in the space that iPad and all the bigger um, companies are coming in with products that not necessarily, um, you know, benefit our effort because we're selling smart pen and paper. It's their traditional versus a screen-based media. Um, how to um, stay on the course and decide uh, which segment we get in. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a great learning curve. And uh, it's a it's a it's a wonderful experience. So so I always tell people, uh, w- wherever you are in your career, try a startup or two. <laughs> I think it's just something um, that help you to expand your um, your awareness. Your um, so so that's uh, 
Even if you don't succeed at them, they are tremendous in terms of getting that type of learning that you can apply to the next assignment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Helen, you'd mentioned the diversity issue, and I'd like to just talk about that for a few minutes. Um, Very interestingly, next week, we have one of our regular webinars, and we're inviting in a consultant that's talking about diversity and inclusion and how to really make those both work to grow profits for your company. Um, You know, the U.S. is a very ethnocentric society, as I'm sure you've learned over these last several decades here. And, you know, you'd mentioned being an Asian woman in the room. How did you kind of come over maybe some of the prejudices and or some of the preconceived notions that perhaps some of the, you know, older, probably predominantly male and white (laughs) board members that you encountered um, in terms of, you know, uh, recognizing your skills and your intellect and your abilities? I, I, first of all, I want to give them the credit. I, I really think from day one, when I was hired uh, by Chuck Smutney, who was the uh, executive vice president at SNW, who hired me, who gave me the first job. Yeah. And, and, and basically, um, you know, I, I saw a, a printed ad in um, San Francisco Chronicle. It, it's a newspaper. <laughs> and I applied. Yeah. I applied. I found my first job in a printed newspaper as well. So I'll have you know, or I'm, I'm right up there with you. <laughs> I think I still have it somewhere. Where it <laughs> Good. That's a terrific See, keepsake. It took some courage to apply, knowing that I didn't have much of experience. But it takes even more courage and insightfulness for Chuck to say, Helen, you went from Beijing, China, to Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, <laughs> and you're here in my office in San Ramon, California, applying for this job. I think you deserve a chance. <laughs> he knew you were special. Yeah, he knew you were special, didn't he? For, for no tangible reason. Yeah, sometimes it is about luck, right? And it's about being in the right place at the right time and having someone that's willing to give you a shot, give you a chance. Diversity and uh, equal opportunities really apply to all races, all ages, uh, all genders, because at the end of the day, we are here to make our contributions and to build a better life for ourselves, families, and the world. And I really think that if we just look at each other from, you know, a cultural point of view and from professional point of view and looking at the skill set and the capability, not just as a, a professional person, if you're an engineer or a marketing person or a creative person or a mechanic person, but, but just, just bring that skill set to a, a, a community and a group of people and be collaborative I think we can all achieve great things and have lots of fun. I learned so much from all kinds of people. And I I love that. Well said. Well, very, very well said. Um, So just progressing your career a bit, Chuck gave you the break. You obviously proved yourself and did a wonderful job. And of course, one opportunity, as we know, leads to another. But, um, you know, as you grew in your responsibility and your contributions, uh, did you ever run into, you know, prejudice or bias where, you know, you had to maybe overcome and or um, develop a relationship with people that might have had preconceived notions maybe about the fact that, 
you know, of your gender or, or of your race or background? Or has that not been an issue for you in the, in the companies you've chosen to work for? Um, it's always out there. Okay. I, what, I'll give you a couple of examples. One, I was a Chinese American representing the frog when I went to Japan. <laughs> I was in the room with a dozen men. Oh, Japanese all Japanese. Men, oh, my goodness. And I ran the meeting. Wow. So I think, I think if, if the focus is on, on a responsibility as to be dominant as what it is, what it takes to get the business to the next level, we ought to prepare ourselves to represent who we are and what we're about, business-wise and personally. So i give you another example. Um, sometimes I joke with my husband, uh, who's a Caucasian from San Francisco, and I said, you know, I've been CEO of TouchJet, right? I've been doing fundraising. And I said, sometimes I, 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 I felt like if I'm, I'm not Helen Thomas. I'm Jeffrey Thomas. <laughs> I may, I may have raised more money. I don't know, right? Um, so, so I think the the data and the facts are out there, and and whether or not as a minority woman CEO could sufficiently raise enough capital to grow my business, that's a challenge for me. Um, but but I'm not complaining. I'm I'm just keep going. I'm 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 still working at it. I'll keep working at it. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully, I'll get where where I want to be. Well, you know, I think you have a very unique and open approach, Helen. And I must say, from the very first conversation that we had about planning this podcast to today, I can tell that you you have a very unique worldview. And, uh, you know, I worked in Asia long enough to know what it must have been like walking into those room of 10 Japanese businessmen, which, you know, have a lot of preconceived notions about the world in which uh, they work and what they do. And to be able to win them over and be able to accomplish what you've done, you know, that takes a very, very special personality. Have you gotten that kind of feedback? Do people tell you that, you know, you have a uniqueness in your approach to others? No, I haven't got very uh, direct any um, so far <laughs> feedback. <laughs> uh, there are a few things. One, and I, I traveled a lot because I was uh, head of worldwide sales around Europe, around the world, even Middle East, and all that. And the people sometimes ask me, like, "How how did you do that?" Right? I, I, I had. Like uh, you know, special investors from different countries. I had an NFL player, retired NFL player, as an investor in Chicago in my company right now. So, so I think is it's just a cumulative um, effect as being a person well exposed and be adaptable and and earn the respect and return that respect. Um, and and the things just kind of just happen along the way. Um, I think I'm just very fortunate. I'm just very fortunate that I'm in a family that's very open. Um, my husband has four sisters, and I have lovely, um, you know, uh, in laws. Um, and uh, I'm I'm part of you know the world and and the community and uh, they are part of my journey as a person so 
um, but thank you for what you said. Uh, yeah, well, you've got that feedback now. <laughs> but but I think also, if you don't mind me saying, I think you see yourself first as a world citizen, and you see yourself as someone who, um, and this is just my impression, as someone who has been successful. You're obviously very smart. You've had great experiences, and I think if you go into situations like that, um, it tends to let others kind of back away from maybe some of their preconceived notions about you. Uh, would that be a, would that be a fair statement? I think that's a very insightful statement. And uh, I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. You know, I, I can tell because I think that, you know, so often we do get caught up into stereotypes or we do get into uh, ways in which, well, gosh, is this person going to think of me that or what have you? And I don't I don't think you worry about that. I think you lead with with your philosophy about being that world citizen and your success. And, you know, I'm sure you've had people that say no thanks and you move on to the next one. Uh, and I think that's a, a sounds to me anyway, uh, if you don't mind me saying a, a very important part of your success strategy. I appreciate what you said. And uh, I will keep on working at <laughs> working <laughs> at it in in a very, uh, you know, uh, interesting world right now, given social media and everything, right? So absolutely. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I should reflect more on it because, uh, because <laughs> where we are today. Um, so that's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much. No question. Well, you know, we're coming up on our hour, but I want to talk a little bit about people, you know, kind of what you do and how you evaluate them and build teams. So, you know, give me a little bit of a riff and some background on, you know, how do you how do you make bets on people you invest in? You know, you've built businesses from scratch. You've had to make a lot of hiring and firing decisions. And, you know, a lot of our audience are folks that, uh, you know, are, are got their eyes on a, a corner office like you've been able to achieve or even the C-suite. And, you know, what what are the types of things that make a difference when you decide to make hiring decisions? I, I think that um, we have to be very respectful in the way that it's a two way street, right? It, as much as uh, as a CEO and a hiring manager, we are selecting ta- talent, but we are also being selected as to whom they will be loyal and committed to to build their uh, career. So so I think the first is really a so-called a culture fit or it's, it's just a, it's a fit, right? Like, do we fundamentally like to work with each other? I think that's very important, no matter how big or small um, the, the organization is. And then and when you say fit, do you see fit as a personal choice in terms of how, you know, if you were interviewing me, how you and I would work together? Or is it more of a corporate company fit or is it a combination of both for you? I think first is the it's a it's a corporate culture and uh, right. it's a career fit. Right. I, I, I think yeah. the personal relationship comes later because because this is a job. This is a, a, That's a right. business we're building and being aware of each of us is contributing to a culture and and the chemistry is built together cumulatively. Everybody has impact on on where this is this goes. Um so so I think having that 
uh, mission statement, having that vision shared, having a positioning that is well-defined is very important so that when they walk into the door, they know what this is all about. Right. And they can almost pre-screen against exactly. that, right? And not show up if they don't think they're aligned to that. And, and, and also be very upfront about objectives. I think it's defining what the job is and what it takes to be successful is very important. Um, so, so I always want to make sure that um, I understand what they've done previously in terms of problem solving. I always want to right. understand um, you know, how they did certain things from the start to the end and to understand their, their thought process as well as, um, uh, their approach to, to challenges as well as to successes and what makes them successful. Right. Right. And, uh, and then really empowering the people whom they work for to make the decision. I don't make all the decisions. I let other people make decisions. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's a, it's a very collaborative environment um, to to make everybody uh, you know happy and and successful in a fast paced um, um, you know team, especially right. at a startup. Right. Yeah, no, no question. Um, thinking about your executive suite, you know, how do you interview and hire there, or what are some of the interview questions? What are some of the interview questions you use? You know, in the executive suite. Um, it's a very long conversation. It's ongoing um, experience um, as a team, right? So, so the, the, the questions are, are always around uh, about three things. One, where they want to be, right? Um, I think that's a typical question at the highest level. Where do you see this company going to be in three, five years? That's what they asked me. And I would ask them, where do they see themselves to be? <laughs> so that's All right. Where do they want to take it? Right. Projection <laughs> is important, right? Yeah. Number it two is, is yeah. what you've done and what you've done well and how you did it. You know, the more understanding we have in terms of how things got executed and how things are accomplished, the better. And the more details we could. Not on day one, obviously. And once again, it's a process to, to really get to know each other. And then number three is, instead of just jumping into a hiring, it's, it's interesting because one of the recruiters called me about two weeks ago about this very successful businessman who, who's funding this whole startup, who's a chairman and wants to hire a CEO. And I said, that's interesting because he can make all the decisions in the world. And that's one-on-one relationship. And sure enough, today, we circle back. We're supposed to have a follow-up conversation. And she said, well, you know, he made a decision. We didn't expect him to make a decision. I said, I did. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you have all the power and the control, you can, right? But, But do you want to? Right. So, so I always believe in, especially on the C-suite level, hiring slow. Hiring slow is the bad thing you could do. Um, but on the other hand, though, I have people have been working for me, with me in the past um, 
15 years and, and I build those relationships along the way. There are people that have always been with me. And even we took breaks here and there. So, so, so having those resources and then being, you know, together, um, regardless where we are, is the biggest asset you can you can have in your in, in the career. I'm sure you, you you're well aware of that. Well, listen. Last question for us, Helen. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, what about career and life advice? You know, someone that might have their eyes set on either the corner office or perhaps getting in the C-suite, but maybe they're you know ten, twenty years younger than us. Uh, what what kinds of uh, counsel would you provide someone who has aspirations? What are the types of things that you think is important for them to do with their careers to ultimately achieve their goals of uh, getting into that C-suite? Position? Um, life is a journey, and mm. I wouldn't see that corner office as a destination. I would, mm. I would focus on the journey. Um, I never ever said to myself I wanted to be a CEO. I was recruited. Mm. I was recruited quite a couple right. of times, right. and uh, <laughs> I mean to be honest. I, I think once your skill set with your experience and with your enriched life as a whole, and you're enabled to achieve great things, you'll be in that position. And, and that, that, that's probably the best thing I could give as advice is just focus on the journey and the destination is there. <laughs> Helen Fu Thomas, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming into the corner office with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.